0: Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike, and this episode we chat with Mark Petrie about flying and displaying the Strike Master. As well as the Strike Master, he also chats about flying the JP privately and his time flying the REF F4 Phantom. So if you like what we do here, go over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can now follow us on Snapchat at aircrewtv and don't forget to visit us at aircrewinterview.tv for all of our other interviews. Thank you and enjoy. joined
1: the RAF? I joined the Air Force in uh, September 1978. And what did you join as? I joined as an Tech AD, an air defence radar technician.
0: So how did you go from that to air crew? Uh,
1: to get to air crew I basically did two years as a radar technician but I'd previously applied to join as air crew. Um, got way through the selection process but was told I needed a bit more experience which is why I joined up as airman uh, entry and then uh, I applied to become aircrew about 18 months into my airman time and got very rapidly whisked off through Biggin Hill. And the rest is then my pilot career, really.
0: So could you tell us some of the aircraft you trained on? Uh,
1: initially, the very first thing I ever flew was a chipmunk, De Havilland chipmunk, um, which I flew at Swinderby for the Flying Selection Squadron, 14 hours. And at the end of that, uh, two of us were streamed off to go straight to Cranwell to start on the Jet Provost Mark V.
0: So what was that like to fly?
1: The 5A, which was uh, the first time I've ever flown a jet, was um, interesting, but as I didn't know any better, the training had me solo within about 13 hours.
0: Brilliant. But well, you then moved on to the Hawk. Can you tell us about this?
1: Yeah, the Hawk, uh, obviously after we'd finished the training on the Jet Provost at Cramwell, sent to Valley on the Hawk, and it, the Hawk was still fairly new at that stage, which was great, uh, so that was 81-ish. Um, over the valley and it was like a real sports car of a machine absolutely wonderful no one beside you You could see out of either side great fun we used to go all over the place on low-level navigation
0: how did it compare to the jp
1: well the the, the jp was great because it was the first sort of aircraft i went solo on but this hawk was truly stunning very quick very agile very light very modern at that time
0: and then you were lucky enough to get uh, posted to Phantoms. Uh, how did you feel about this?
1: Well, prior to the Phantoms bit, I actually went through Brody for attack weapons. Um, and whilst at Brodie, uh, they basically we had to do air-to-air stuff, so air-to-air gunnery, air combat, but we also did a lot of bombing. And during the bombing phase, I was getting exceptional scores, and they were desperate to send me Jaguars. I was desperate not to go Jaguars. Mm-hmm. Uh, the phantom had been my favorite since about 14 uh, and that's where i really wanted to go a nice big powerful airplane uh, and so at the end of the course i came second on the course and they asked for our choices i chose phantom mm-hmm. they tried to dissuade me from it i stuck my heels in and i went phantom which was great
0: so was a phantom a capable aircraft in the 80s
1: it was still very capable. In fact, in the eighties, we were just moving from the American Sparrow missiles to the BAE Skyflash missiles um, and upgraded Sidewinders. So, with the uh, fantastic radar on it and the good missiles, it, in the eighties, it was really at its peak.
0: So, how did it fare in against other NATO
1: types? Well, that was always interesting against certain. I mean, at that time, in the eighties, there were a lot of older aircraft still around. Um, But the F-16 was still fairly new. Um, Obviously, it couldn't outturn an F-16. F-15s, generally speaking, it could almost stick with an F-15. What we were good at, though, is the British tended to not follow the rules exactly as they were written. And the Americans always followed the rules implicitly. So, generally speaking, we could win. So what squadrons were you based with on the Phantom? Uh, On the Phantom, I went uh, from OCU up to Trouble One at Lucas, uh, which was an excellent location to be at. Fantastic setting. And also being Northern QRA was very busy. Uh, Whilst on Trouble One, I did a posting down at the Falklands on 23 Squadron.
0: So could you tell us about your role uh, on the Phantom in the Falklands?
1: In The Falklands, we were down there policing post uh, the Falklands War. So I was there at the end of 85 through to the first few months of 86, four and a half months. Um, Most of the time it was on QRA or training sorties um, with the Navy, doing ship attacks, just keeping them up to speed, doing a lot of um, 2V1s, 1V2s, um, just generally having a good time flying.
0: So how did it differ uh, flying over there compared to the UK or Europe?
1: Uh, The main thing in the Falklands is at the time I went there, there was a massive fuel monitorium in the UK. They were trying to cut costs, trying to save on fuel on the squadrons, so we weren't getting that much flying on squadrons, and it was all very limited. Um, Dan and the Falklands went down there, and suddenly we found that we were being told we had to use masses of fuel, so there was lots of flying. Uh, The flying was very different in that it was mostly ultra-low level um, or very high level.
0: So after this, you moved on to the Tornado F2 and F3. How
1: do you feel about this? Uh, It was the F2 when I was posted to it in December 86. Um, It was the last place I wanted to go, primarily because I don't particularly like Lincolnshire. Having spent about five, six years in Lincolnshire at that stage, I did not want to go back to Lincolnshire. And new aeroplanes have a big problem. If you get onto a new aeroplane when it's new, you tend to get stuck with that forever. Mm. And I could see that was going to happen. Um, I did go. I gave, went with an open mind. When I flew the F2, I was very disappointed. And so shortly after I did my first crew solo, as they were called, I handed my notice in.
0: Mm. But did you feel it was a big leap forward in capability?
1: At that stage, no, it wasn't. The Tornado F2 was a glorified hawk.
0: <laughs> so how long did you spend on the Tornado
1: Uh, Well, having handed my notice in, I was moved into the ground school area where I then did another two and a bit years um, until I left the Air Force in 1990.
0: So overall, did you enjoy your time in the RAF?
1: Time in the RAF was fantastic. I wouldn't have missed it for anything in the world. It wouldn't have given me the training I had, both on engineering and in flying, if I hadn't gone through the Air Force.
0: So Mark, could you tell us what happened after your RAF career in terms of flying commercially?
1: Yes, once I'd resigned from the Air Force, I had to suddenly come up with an idea of what I was going to do, and obviously commercial airlines was the way forward. I resigned um, beginning of 87. Commercial market just suddenly started to open up at that point. So I went through getting my commercial licences, which was very interesting considering I could fly anywhere in the world in an RAF aircraft, but suddenly couldn't fly anywhere at all in a civil aircraft. A bit of time getting commercial licences applying for jobs. Back then in the late 80s, it was very interesting in that um, I actually applied for five jobs. was offered four of them um, and ultimately settled on uh, British Airways with the TriStar.
0: Lovely. So you mentioned the TriStar there. Could you tell us some of the other aircraft you flew?
1: Yes, uh, TriStar was the first, did that for two and a half years, both in the mainline role and then charter configuration down at Gatwick. Um, and then from there went on to the DC-10, Doing both again, the charter and the mainline, schedule stuff. After the DC ten, I did five and a half years on the DC ten, which was a great machine. I went on to the jumbo four hundred, the seven four seven four hundred. They were still new at that stage; they were still getting new ones in. Yep. That was an incredible airplane, and obviously where it went made it very special. Um, did six years total on the jumbo, with a brief period of eighteen months, no sixteen months, flying the seven three seven up at Manchester. They closed the base. I went back to the jumbo. After the jumbo, I then decided it was time to move on. Generally didn't spend much more than five, six years on an aircraft type before I figured I should improve myself and change. So I moved to the 777. Um, and suddenly after eight and a bit years on the 777, I realized I'd been on it an eight and a bit years <laughs> and decided to move on to the 787.
0: So what was it like flying something as modern as a 78 compared to a TriStar?
1: Well the 787 is very modern Um, it was quite strange it's the same type rating as the 777 so I literally only had to do a three day ground school course and one simulator and I was now cleared to fly a 787 very different even from the 777 Uh, compared to the TriStar, the TriStar was all clockwork dials, uh, old school type flying Um, you had to plan everything, everything was using radio instruments on the 787 you've got Fantastic big television screens, uh, very easy to program, and basically the aeroplane will fly where you want it to.
0: And I have to ask do you have a favourite commercial plane you've flown or you
1: flying? Yes, the, I think probably the DC 10 wins as being the most fun. It was a very much sports car to fly. Having the flight engineer as well made it absolutely great. Um, that said, there's nothing nicer than flying a 747 visual flying around Africa.
0: So in 2000, Mark, you purchased a share in a JP. Could you tell us how
1: this happened? Yes, there was a colleague of mine who I'd flown with on the TriStar, um, and he was living up north up here, and he already had a share in the Jet Provost. But unfortunately, the CA rules meant that they had to have a nominated training captain. And the CA wouldn't accept either of the two people who owned it, as they had no military experience. Uh, He talked me into it. He knew I had a couple of aircraft down at Shoreham. Uh, he knew I was moving north, so he asked if I would get involved. I came and flew the aeroplane. It actually flew really nicely. I'd never flown the JP-3 in military service, uh, found it very light and easy to fly, uh, and then said, yes, I'd be happy to be their training captain, to which he said I would need to buy a share. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these days it's far more strict, but at that time they required a relevant experience and a check ride. Um, from my point of view, I did a flight with one of the group owners, which was, if you like, my familiarisation with the aeroplane, said, yes, I was interested. So my next flight was actually the check ride with an instructor who wasn't quite as competent as he thought, as he discovered when he was flying with me. Um, and after that, I got signed up and the CAA head of GA unit at the time accepted my application to be a training captain on it.
0: So what kind of flying would you conduct?
1: Generally speaking, in an ex-military jet, uh, owners tend to do either just circuit training, local flying. For me, I tend to go off and do aerobatics in it, uh, low-flying out in Wales, because we're right on the border of Wales here. So the best low-flying in the UK is literally 15 miles off the end of the runway. Mm
0: -hmm. So is there any restrictions in terms of airspace?
1: The only thing we're not allowed to fly in is Class A airspace. We can fly anywhere else. Uh, following the normal rules of air so 500 feet is our minimum height over any structures people Um, obviously in Wales there's some areas where there's no structures or people Um, other than that we just have to keep out of the class a airspace where the airliners are all flying around and if we go through an airfield we need to be speaking to the air traffic control and we can fly in there as well
0: so obviously when you went back and um, flew the JP, did you have to be lighter on the controls than you did in your RF days?
1: Funnily enough, no, because none of the aircraft I've flown have ever been G-restricted. So we can basically operate to the full limits, which we did in the Air Force. So with the JP, that's six, uh, plus 6G, minus 3. Uh, in the Stripe Master, it's plus 5.5, minus 2.5. And, um, and we can use up to the limits. The only reason for being lighter is to actually preserve the fatigue life on the aeroplane, because at the end of the day, we're paying for it. Yes, uh, so on a flying day, when you're going flying in any ex-military jet, and certainly in the JP3, you'd have to do an after-flight, before-flight servicing, which consisted of basically checking to make sure all the oils and fluid levels are correct. You'd check to make sure you have enough fuel for your planned sortie. You'd have to look at NOTAM, same as any uh, general aviation pilot, really, although a lot of general aviation pilots tend to miss some of the important NOTAMs. Uh, with the speed you're moving at in a jet to 10 knots in the JP3, you need to make sure that the airspace you're flying through is fit and available for you. Having checked all of that, weather is very important. Um, flying the ex-military jets, we are limited to day VFR only, so we're not allowed to fly through cloud. Mm-hmm.
0: You also uh, flew JP5s and the strike masters back then. Could you tell us about this?
1: Yes, um, I, having been nominated as a training captain, accepted uh, by the CA for that, we had uh, a few owners would come along and ask for further training, and then they'd ask us to start doing the maintenance on their aeroplanes. So I found that I was flying two different JPs, JP5As. Uh, in fact, one was a pure 5 from Finningley, one was a 5A with tip tanks. Um, did some flying on both of those, and then we did our first Stripe Master Started the rebuild on that in 2001, ex-Saudi aircraft. Um, I did all the test flying on it, um, which consists of about six, seven sorties total to get it approved for the CAA. Um, so quite a lot of flying in those days, quite a lot of fun. Yeah. Fuel was quite cheap.
0: <laughs> so could you tell us the difference between the JP marks?
1: The JP-3 is the lowest powered of the lot. It, it is uh, known as the constant noise variable thrust. Um, Bit of an oddball aeroplane. You put the power on full and nothing seems to happen. Takes quite a while, but once it's wound up and in the air, it's actually really nice and light to fly, very pleasant, but quite noisy because it's not a pressurised canopy. Uh, With the JP5, you get the pressurisation. There's added weight, but it does have more thrust. It gets airborne much easier. Uh, It's quite nice to fly. The standard Jet Provost brakes make it a bit limiting on some runways. Um, and then the Stripe Master is a different beast again. Much heavier aeroplane, but a huge amount more thrust. So suddenly aircraft uh, can get in and out of runways you weren't doing before. Uh, the climb rates are excellent. Um, it's much faster. It does fly differently. It's got a more C of G than most JPs. So it just t- tends to handle a bit differently.
0: So back then, would you take passengers up, for instance,
1: Um, Back then same as now really the same rules uh, we're not allowed to take fair paying passengers so whilst I do occasionally take passengers it's at my own expense really we're allowed to do cost sharing Um, I see very little value in doing cost sharing because why would I pay 50 percent of the cost of a flight to take someone up so generally speaking I take passengers who I find to be deserving or happen to be um, a good cause or whatever
0: so for the geeks out there, can you tell us a bit of guess, um, performance stats for
1: the JP's? Uh, the JP3, as I've already said, the cruising speed is about 210 knots, sort of maximum cruising speed. It will do 240. The difference then with the JP5 is it cruises happily at 240, but will do 300. With the Strike Master, you're looking at it's happy at 250, easy at 300, will do 360. So straight away you can see there's a massive performance across the range. Maximum speed of three is about 350 knots. Maximum speed of five is 400, and of the strike is 450.
0: So Mark, we're obviously standing behind the Strike Master. How did you get involved with this um, particular
1: aircraft? Uh, this aircraft started out as uh, we were chasing down spares for Jet Provost Stroke Strike Master aircraft around the world And at the time, we knew there was a a package of spares in Oman. Oman had stopped flying the Strike Master, And we knew they were looking to try and dispose of their spares. So we'd been trying to negotiate with the Omani Air Force for about two years. And I was down in London, sort of end of November 2004. Had a phone call from a gentleman I knew from the Air Force vaguely, Group Captain Jeff Brindle. And he called up and said, I'd best come out and have a look at the spares and my aeroplane. To which my response was, aeroplane? I hadn't expected an aeroplane. Uh, The response to that was, well, we can't let you have the spares without an aeroplane. And as we have the last one that was ever made, you can have that.
0: Wow. So, can you tell us a bit about the Strike Master? What kind of aircraft was it in its military day?
1: In its military day, it was very much a, a light ground attack. The Armani Air Force used it very extensively in the 70s. Uh, especially the early 70s, Battle of Murbat is made famous by the book Stormfront by Roland White. Very good read if anyone hasn't read it. Um, We had loan service officers out in Oman flying the Omani Air Force aircraft for them, defending Oman. A lot of other countries used them as light ground attack. They were also used as advanced trainers. This was before the Hawk had been built. It was cheaper to operate than a hunter, so a lot of countries that couldn't afford to operate a hunter could afford to operate a strike master. Mm-hmm. So its role was primarily like ground attack, advanced training, and basic or middle uh, jet training for some air forces.
0: So was it a capable
1: military jet? Very capable. I mean, the Amanis flew it um, with four 500-pound bombs under it, and just as a um, idea of what that means, Typhoon today carries four 500-pound bombs. Impressive. This is considerably cheaper than a Typhoon. Um, the Amanis could carry 32 Sura rockets it was always armed with two machine guns um, other countries would fit things like Sneb pods so it could carry an awful lot of armament
0: So can you remember your first flight now?
1: In this one I do remember the first flight uh, we'd obviously picked it up in 2004 pre- uh, spent most of and f- the early part of 2005 getting it ready a lot of work required to bring it up to standard um, First flight was a case of getting airborne in the local area to see how it behaved. That's when I discovered the Amani still had it set up in roll for carrying four or five hundred pound bombs. It was incredibly twitchy in roll.
0: Mm -hmm. So obviously we've just talked about it, but how did it compare to the JPs? Was it a big difference?
1: Massive difference. Uh, you got a full power on the brakes in this compared to the JP5, where you would normally go to 90% on the brakes, you think, oh, well, that means it's not as powerful. No, the brakes are very different on this machine. So it's got very powerful brakes, and as soon as you release the brakes from full power, straight away you feel a kick, and you realise that it's got some thrust. It very rapidly accelerates to get airborne. It's airborne in about 400 yards, which is quite quick, and very quickly accelerates towards gear-limiting speed, which is luckily a bit higher than on the Jet Provost. Mm-hmm. So very quickly, you're at 140 knots. For noise abatement locally, we climb at 140 knots uh, until at least 1,000 feet, um, which means I'm usually 1,000 feet before the end of the runway. <laughs> Whereas in a jet provost I'd be lucky if I was through a 400 feet.
0: <laughs> yeah. So did you have to change the cockpit much?
1: Uh, the only things we did initially when I uh, put it on the register... Um, I'm just trying to think I know we didn't have to do any changes at all when we first because all of its radios were civilian certifiable radios so we didn't actually have to do anything other than put in an extra jettison switch it was um, the CA were very good if you can prove the equipment is certified for civil use you can keep it
0: yeah so obviously many of us know you from the display circuit how did you get involved with that
1: The display circuit, I've been doing static displays in Jet Provost right from about 2001. So we got to know a lot of the display people. Um, I've been teaching aerobatics since about 91, um, mainly on chipmunks, uh, like the one I have in the hangar. Um, And I've always been teaching people to do aerobatics both for display purposes and for competition purposes. We were a bit disappointed with some of the people that were on the display circuit and what their experience levels. Um, and so, against my better wishes, I decided to get a display authorization so that at least I could try and make sure there was someone out there who knew what was happening with the aeroplane. Uh, that quickly started getting me bookings. I um, started doing solo displays in 2007. Uh, 2007 through to the beginning of 2009, I flew solo displays. Um, and then in back end of 2008, I was asked if I would join a team. So I did that for one year. At the end of that, decided it was far easier being a solar display pilot. And so went back to solar display flying and have been doing that up until 2016.
0: So could you tell us how you go about planning an airshow?
1: Yes, the planning has to start very much looking at what the aeroplane can do, what you don't want to be doing with the aeroplane, which is often based on safety reports. Um, So back in 2007, I used to have an inverted pass in my displays. Uh, We lost an aircraft uh, with one of my friends uh, flying it in 2009 uh, when he flew inverted. And the subsequent accident inquiry threw up an interesting comment from Rolls-Royce of they knew the engine might flame out occasionally when inverted, but they hadn't worked out why. So at that point onwards, I stopped all inverted passes. In the airplane because there's no need to do it. So the, the main thing is we don't do anything that's likely to jeopardize the airplane. Mm-hmm. So you start your display planning with that as the first and foremost thought. From there you then look at what will look best on a standard display line of about a mile long and you work out what maneuvers will fit in. The airplane isn't a high-speed airplane so there's no point trying to do high-speed runs per se because that can be left to the likes of Tornado Typhoon, F-16s. So you then look at what's the aeroplane good at. And the aeroplane is very good at tight turns, keeping in front of the crowd. It's very good at rolling. So you did start designing a sequence based around a rolling, tight sequence, trying to show off what the aeroplane can do. So with the strike mass having so much power and actually accelerating to its manoeuvring speeds very quickly... One of the items I put in very early on was a slow speed pass with the next pass being a loop. When I first uh, did my display authorization, and the DAE who had to come and sit in and supervise what I was doing and I explained to him this is what the plan was, he was a hawk pilot. He couldn't believe that could be done until he was shown and he thought it was quite amazing the performance the aeroplane can do. So the the display builds up with what you know the aeroplane can do, what you're trying not to do and thinking of the sights. From that, you then quite quickly come up with a series of manoeuvres that you know will work, and it's then a case of trying to plan those manoeuvres to give you a smooth, flowing 10-minute sequence.
0: Mm -hmm. And is that sequence, uh, the timings, is that due to fuel, or is that just a little... uh, Generally
1: generally speaking, airshow organisers don't want you out there hogging the show for the whole thing. People will get bored. So it's also a cost element because the longer you're out there, the more fuel you use. It is a very hungry aeroplane on fuel, far more so than a jet provost. Burns about 50% more than a jet provost. Um, So 10 minutes is a normal sort of display window. Um, You have to plan a display so that you can cut it short somewhere or maybe extend it by a couple of minutes. So, whatever display sequence you have, you have to have a couple of manoeuvres that you could throw in to extend it, or a couple of manoeuvres you can use to take it down. Um, but ten minutes is about normal.
0: And you change the routine every year?
1: I generally do, eight um, to stop the spectators getting bored, and also to stop me getting bored. Um, I look at what worked well in the previous year. We always take video footage in cockpit. Um, of all the displays which we use as a debrief tool from that it allows me to look at what worked well what appeared to work well we get feedback from the photographers we don't get much feedback from just general participants at air shows and we don't get a huge amount of feedback from flying display and flying control committees as they generally say we know what you're doing we like it carry on so we don't tend to get much influence on our display patterns from them um, so, generally, it tends to be we chat with other p- display pilots, see what they're doing, and add a, or maybe change just one or two items in the routine for the year.
0: So, do you have a favourite maneuver you uh, perform?
1: Uh, one of my favourite maneuvers, which the aircraft's really good at, is a vertical roll. Uh, just shows how different it is in power over the JP because everyone thinks it's just a grey JP. So if I come in for the final manoeuvre at 350 knots and pull into the vertical, I'm usually right at the top end of any display area around five and a half, six thousand 6,000 feet at the top of it. And With the smoke system, it leaves a great vertical column of smoke to leave with.
0: So talking about the smoke system, it's quite unique on the airshore circuit. Uh, how did you decide to do this?
1: Um, very simply, um, we were asked by some of the organisers, could we put smoke to the aeroplane? The answer is always, yes, you can do anything. But it needs approval. Um, The smoke systems that had previously been used on Stripe Masters, we'd looked at and found they really weren't producing enough smoke. We were looking for something closer to what the Reds could produce. So we discussed with uh, suppliers of smoke oils, various other things, how to try and get a decent quantity of smoke. Um, It then required a full development and major modification approval with the CAA. I was very lucky it was three and a half months and we got the modification approved
0: Brilliant So when does your airshow season start?
1: For us the airshow season starts with training in about March the first displays in about May and then carries on through till September So we start our training in fact this year we started training because I've taken on new pilots as we look to introduce the second aeroplane um, and we started our training in February using two chipmunks because that gets pilots working together and I have the two chipmunks here, which makes life nice and easy. Um, So we do a workup in the chipmunks, get everyone working together in formation, plan our display that we're going to do, and then move on to the jets and start then the training in the jets.
0: So how many actual sites would you display in a year? Um,
1: 2017 was our busiest season ever. Uh, We had 34 individual displays. We were supposed to do 36, but two were canceled. So, have you ever displayed with any other display teams on the circuit? Uh, I have, um, more recently um, I've actually displayed with Richard Goodwin airshows. Uh, we do a little routine, i have done it for the last three years. Uh, some airshows quite like it, uh, it's a bit different, suddenly finding a piston engine aeroplane on the wing of a jet, and Richard and I have developed a short routine which lasts about five or six minutes, which we tend to stick in between my display and his display. And the other display team I've worked with uh, is this year because of trying to introduce the second Strike Masters, we didn't have the second Strike Master. I actually brought in uh, the Jet Provost display team and used um, one of their pilots and a couple of their airplanes as my number two, or on a one occasion for a lead this year as well. Previously, I flew with Team Viper for one year.
0: So, do you have any highlights for the 2007 season?
1: Uh, 2017, the highlights I would say were probably Cosford with explosions um, and the T the Mark 52 that we borrowed. Um, that was a very interesting display. Challenging weather conditions, very windy on the uh, day, so it made it uh, quite challenging for me to fly in formation on a much lighter aeroplane. Uh, the explosions added a new element to it, and we're looking at doing that at a few air shows uh, hopefully in 2018.
0: Yeah, so just speaking of that, what is the future for yourself and
1: the Strike Master? Uh, the future is looking quite rosy for us. Uh, there's very few ex military jet display teams around now. Um, unfortunately, 2015 and Shoreham caused a massive shake up in the industry. It's meant that a lot of the ex military jets have now stopped flying or moved abroad. Um, and it's meant very few people are willing to take on uh, ex military jet uh, teams at displays. And because i 've been doing it for such a long time i 'm a known quantity uh, i 've been able to then approach organizers and bring in a second aircraft and we 're bringing in an aircraft that 's in the thousand nine hundred and seventy two Omani Air Force color scheme, so that 'll be quite nice um, we 've got a, The pilots are trained up now, so we 're planning on doing quite a few more pairs displays and we 're going to stick another little gadget on the airplane for the two thousand and eighteen display season which should prove interesting. Can you tell us? Uh, You'll see it in 2018.
0: So overall, do you enjoy flying the Strike Master?
1: The Strike Master is awesome to fly.
0: So Mark, do you have any hobbies?
1: Yes, I do. Funnily enough, uh, I like diving.
0: So do you have a favourite aircraft you have flown?
1: I've got to say that my favourite aircraft is probably the Chipmunk. It was the very first aircraft I ever flew myself, and I still fly them today.
0: Is there one you wish you could have flown?
1: That's a tricky one. Um, Probably would have liked to have flown the F-15.
0: And where can we find you online?
1: Online, we have a couple of options. Uh, We have a Facebook page, StrikeMaster Master Display UK. We've got quite a few followers on that. All of our airshow footage goes on that. And we're on Twitter and Instagram as Strike Display UK. And
0: the final question, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation?
1: Not at all.
0: Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and if you like what we do here don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as one dollar per month. Thank you and see you soon.